Hello and welcome to Ely Saying Something. This time we're talking to Pippa Halings. Pippa is the Liberal Democrats candidate for the 2019 general election here in the South East Cambridgeshire constituency. Let's hear what she's got to say. Pippa Halings, welcome to Ely Saying Something. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. No problem at all. Right, easy question to begin. How did you become interested in politics? Hmm, I started at a very early age. Okay. Um, I grew up in East Yorkshire, in the city of Hull, which at that time was one of the left-behind cities. And I grew up with a GP father, and my mother was a nurse. And I went out with my father um, on all the local visits. And at that time, in Hull, it was a bit like the collapse of the enclosure of the coal mines because there was the collapse of the North Sea cod fisheries. And so I saw families suddenly in levels of impoverishment, impoverishment and levels of deprivation, I'd say loss of identity, abuse within the families, alcoholism, um, and rising levels of suicide. And there was no safety net. There was nothing in place when that major industry fell apart. And I then realized that none of them had a voice, nobody was looking out for them, and the inequality there you know, struck me so hard. And I think probably you know, with my father, who was working very hard to then see how they could get access to all the basic services, made me really understand what was needed. Okay. Wow. Okay, you may have preempted my next question then, which is, what are you most passionate about? So I'm passionate about fairness, about equal access to opportunity. Can opportunities can be out there, but it's the access to the opportunity. Um, But I have to say, what am I most passionate about? And that is climate change and the environment. And on the leaders' debate, do you know, climate change was put in as one of the filler questions at the end, after a question about Prince Andrew. So I am passionate about climate change and environment because in my 20s, I went out as a volunteer and I worked in East Africa and I stayed out there and worked for the next 30 years across Africa, Asia and South America. And I was able to, so very privileged, I was able to, you know, swim in the most pristine coral reefs. I was able to go into the Amazon forest and stay with indigenous tribes and see how much people are completely dependent on nature and the natural resources around them. But I've also seen turtles strangling you know, on plastic in the oceans and being strangled by six-pack plastic carriers. And I've seen the seabirds, you know, with plastic rubbish in their entrails, feeding it to the baby babies because they only feed from the mothers. So I've seen what we can do with the world and how we need to really take environment seriously locally and nationally and globally. And I've also seen what is happening now with the impacts of climate change on small, low-lying islands and those that live by the coast in terms of sea level rise and flooding and the most awful famine and droughts that are caused now by climate change. And then we've just seen now in the UK and Europe, last year there were 400 deaths from heat stress in UK. 
So that is why The Lancet published the latest climate and health emergency report. We are now in the UK also seeing the impacts of climate change and we're not doing enough about it. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I think in the past we've seen it as a broad issue that affects abroad and it's almost a luxury issue. 400 deaths from heat, flooding we've seen over the last few weeks. This isn't a broad brush issue, this is real and it's affecting people right now. I'm going to jump forward a few questions then. Um, what practical measures would you introduce to tackle climate change? Yeah, so I'm a district councillor um, since last year and I'm chair of the Climate Change and Environment Committee, which is a new committee we've created to make sure we are looking at these things practically. And I'm also vice chair on the planning committee. And one really practical thing that is necessary is for local authorities to be given full powers over planning standards. What is happening is we are building on floodplains. And I know exactly why, because I sit in on all of the planning applications and the controversial planning applications. This Tory government has stripped back all standards for zero carbon homes and even for the sustainable codes for homes. So as local authorities, officers and councillors and communities are unable to demand the standards that are necessary to ensure that we are safe from flooding, to ensure that we have well-ventilated homes and that we can shift to the net zero carbon targets that we have through renewable energy within new developments. Added to that, we know the importance as well of nature and access to green spaces for physical and mental health. And I've passed the doubling nature motion at council which means that South Cambridgeshire and East Cambridgeshire are the lowest in terms of tree cover in the UK and the lowest in terms of biodiversity. So as we are dealing with, these, with this growth that's happening and we do need to build affordable homes, at the same time we will double the amount of land that is dedicated to wildlife and to providing those green spaces to people. Can I just ask you, Pippa, you mentioned affordable homes. Um, I'm a low-rent economist, you can't build affordable homes on unaffordable land. So is it really social housing we need, or is it affordable homes? I think we need both. It was, well, I must say, my, my mouth, you know, jaw hit the ground when I got onto the council and said, so of course we now need to look at building what I understood in the past to be council homes. Yeah. And everybody said they're just not possible to build anymore in terms of the cost of this because of the cost of land and the cost of materials and actually what you would get back in rent. So what we are looking at now, because the borrowing rates um, for councils, the cap has been removed, it is possible now for councils to build both the social and the affordable homes. And we are looking now at a mixture of the different rental possibilities and lifetime tenancies which we need to provide for people to ensure that they can actually do it. And we're looking at providing key worker housing as well with, you know, within that. So I think it's both. I think we really need to look at the possibility of creating strategic areas where we keep down that, you know, the, the land values. Um, and we are enabled with the money that we can borrow as councils to provide that much needed housing. Yeah. No one's manufacturing new land. 
if you own land, the price tends to go up. There's almost no incentive to produce any effort on the land because the effort isn't rewarded. Inaction is actually rewarded. Yeah, so the market won't succeed there. So social housing's possible. But to make affordable housing possible, you need to make the land affordable to build on it. That's rather more difficult, isn't it? So what's the balance then between social and affordable housing? We're in an area of huge growth. It is one of the fastest growing areas in terms of economy and growth and population in the country at the moment. Therefore, there is a possibility, and I've argued for this. So um, one of the real problems in East Cams at the moment is the lack of a local plan which sets out these policies clearly. There is rampant speculative development happening. Yes. Land value is just skyrocketing and hitting the roof, and the only people that are profiting are those people who own the land and the developers at the moment. It's almost like having um, you know, an offshore area here in East Cams because you're only being asked to give less than 20% of affordable homes on very you know, profitable land. There must be 40% minimal affordable housing. If I got into Parliament, one of the first things I would do would be to deal with the issue of the viability assessment in development. And you can bring that in if you're strong enough, and we're doing that on the planning committee now, and showing that viability is a negotiable issue, and you can provide 40% affordable housing of the same standards as well. Okay. Several issues there we've covered already. Housing the environment, and you've talked in practical terms, thanks for that. M many people feel passionately about those, but they're not motivated to join a political party. Mm. Um, you clearly are. So and why did you join a party? Very interesting. I joined a party initially, and it was the Green Party that I joined, um, as my first political party. And I think it's about seeking out people who want to come together, have shared values, and they want to create a vision for the kind of world they want to lead in, live in, and want to work on it together. I don't think it's a them and us issue about political parties. It's about people coming together and then having a way to have that dialogue and the tension that's needed in order to produce the policies we need. And it gives a voice. You know, it builds a group of people, shared values, building a vision together that gives a voice to those who often don't have that voice. That's why I joined the party, a party, it was the Green Party. I then moved to the Liberal Democrat Party. Yeah, yeah, talk me through that, because um, if somebody was listening to this, they'd no idea why we were talking, or that begs the question, why would they be listening? Um, I could <laughs> see why you joined the Greens. Um, how on earth did you end up in the Lib Dems? I ended up in the Lib Dems because I'm a doer. And... I want to be in a party that is governing. And when I stood for local, um, for the local council, the Lib Dems were the party, even though they were in the minority, but they were the party that could take over, and we did. So we took control of South Cam's district council from the Tories, full majority, and we can now do the things that's needed. And the values that the Liberal Democrat Party has resonate so strongly to the values I've had ever since I've been little and when we were talking about growing up. And that is community, internationalism, which you've heard about, you know, my work internationally, and environmentalism. And when I looked back then at the environmental policies of all major political parties, 
it was the Liberal Democrats which had the strongest environmental policies. So Green Party, you're an activist and you're pushing the other parties. Liberal Democrats had the strongest environmental policies that were governable, that are able to be put in practice as a government. A couple of things there for people listening. In Ely, we get very Ely-centric. We talk about East Cams, but the constituency cuts across the border of two local authorities. So there's elements of the South Cams area and the East Cams area in the constituency. It's important for me to say, otherwise I get emails aplenty. Yeah. Okay. And on that, I'd just like to say um, the issues that enabled us to win the South Cams District Council as Liberal Democrats are now rising fast in East Cams. I've looked at the issues around planning in East Cambridgeshire. And villages are being exposed to inappropriate development. This is not going to take us anywhere near either sustainable, fair or net zero targets. We're having carbuncles planned and built on the edge of villages and towns without any access to the high street, for example, Soham, that would enable those new communities to be part of an existing community, enable the, the high street to be a thriving high street and ensure that the public transport is viable. And when we invest in the public transport, that is there frequent, viable and um, reliable. All of these new developments have their backs to the existing villages. There is no work to integrate them, and they are all based on the car. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in one of the outlying villages from Ely, and uh, I think it's entirely correct. You could live all your life, really. And with that, in fact, I did it. I, no, I'm going to confession time. I, I first moved to Witchford in, uh, 20 years ago, almost to the day. And um, until we had children, about three or four years later, I don't think I knew anyone else in the village. I used to get home, I worked from my box room, Okay, I drove all over East yeah. Anglia and spent two days a month in Edinburgh. I was part of the problem, not mm. the solution. And, that, mm. and I don't think it should be called the problem. I think you know, what we've seen <laughs> is many, many groups of people are being pushed further and further out. The demographics are mm. changing. We are growing fast. And so people should feel that they want to be in the place you know, that they're going. Now, they're having a commute. That commute should be easy. And after the commute, they should feel that they are part of the community that they're part of. What we are doing as local councillors now is ensuring that there is a, a long and detailed piece of work to introduce new communities to the existing communities and make sure that the public transport, the schools, the local school provision is all there for any new community that's coming in. It's not up to every individual to, to do that on their own. You know, we have to help make sure that happens. That's right. But uh, uh, earlier in this podcast series, I spoke to our local Extinction Rebellion cell and uh, they said, yeah, it's all about national action, but we've all got to take action locally. I mean, if, if, you, if you think globally, but you don't act locally, then you possibly are part of the problem. Yeah. So if we don't have public transport, real investment in it, making sure the infrastructure is there for existing villages and for all the new developments, this is ridiculous. We are locking ourselves in to you know, fossil fuel, car-owned economy that will get us nowhere near the net zero carbon targets that we need for our children's future and for our own you know, quality of life. 
Okay. Let's talk about the the, the immediate future. Mm. Now, Pippa, there's an election on. Yes. Right now, I'm going to stretch things a bit. I'm going to I'm going to take you forward to election day, December the 12th. Put it in your diary, and I also want to take you right back to the um, Euro election in 2009. Yeah. Right now, if you live in England and you and I do, yeah, uh, that's the ninth level. Sorry, ninth national level poll yeah. in England during that 10 year period, which yeah. I've extended by a few months. Um, have some people got polling fatigue? You know, you'd think so. You yeah. know, and we, we hear about Brenda. You know, yeah. <laughs> but I've been on the doorsteps now for you know near five weeks and across South East Cam's constituency, East and South. And there's a real mixture. And there are some people who are saying, I am so tired of this. And it's because there's very, very little clarity for them about what's happening. They've never seen such a volatile situation. But I have to say, that is balanced by some people who are so galvanised by what's happening. And I've had lovely ladies who have said, oh, ladies on the door, they have said, uh, well, I can't switch it off. It's like a box set that never ends. You know? mm. <laughs> so they're kind of drawn into it. But I do think people feel that now it's time to step forward, to stand up, because they see such an erosion. It's not just like another poll. This is an erosion of everything that they hold dear, from all political parties, I have to say, yep. you know, and none. And I'm finding people who are saying, for the first time ever, I'm going to do this. So this is a fascinating time. So it's kind of a balance and a mixture of those who are feeling they never want to touch politics again to those who are galvanised and saying, I have to step forward this time. Well, I'd, um, I'd love that to be the case. Um, but this constituency, which is as the South East Cambridgeshire constituency, there's an election on December the 12th, um, it was created in 1983. Since then, no one has come close to unseating the incumbent MP. Is it really different this time? And of course, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> but because I'm a Liberal Democrat, and we like evidence. Because yeah. <laughs> we like evidence. Um, yeah, because actually people are, as we've just said, you know, they, they feel that the decisions that are being taken now are really affecting their lives. And, you know, the MP currently is not local. Now, we've had Tory MPs before who are local. Yeah. And the current MP has had to put down that her house is not within the constituency. Now, we know we have to balance that, but actually, you know... Her well, I, I'm going to balance that straight away. Yes. OK, because there are plenty of people who sleep here mm. whose lives aren't in the constituency. Mm -hmm. What I'm interested in is, are you actively engaged? Now, my family are from Glasgow Hill Head, mm -hmm. where uh, Roy Jenkins won that for the SDP. Lost it to George Galloway, incidentally, if you're in a pub quiz. <laughs> um, and it was a Tory constituency before that. OK, but I don't think Roy Jenkins was a regular at Partick This or... And for people who like to email, I know Partick this will play at Mary Hill, but they, the Partick is in Glasgow Hill Head, emailers. Right, so, so, no, so I think Tony I Benn think... represented more than one constituency. Shirley Williams had a go at many in the interest of balance. So, I mean, what is the MP engaged locally? That's what more yeah, yeah. I So I think it is engaged locally. And that's the thing. South East Cams is changing, as we've been discussing over this. Yeah. And the pressures on South East Cams as a rapidly transforming what was kind of rural you know, constituency 
is now being faced with challenges it's never had before. New communities that are coming in, existing communities that are starved of public services and need that, um, need all the access that they, they can have. And I think that the work of an MP in this constituency is to be able to live that and understand it and be able to represent it on a daily basis and to strengthen the local authorities you know, that are in place. And because I said, you know, I like evidence. So, you know, at the moment, the polling that we've done, and we, we commissioned an independent surveillance poll, and that is giving us, um, you know, for the first time ever, a real point in favour, saying that, you know, if this was a two-horse race, this is close. The other thing is that I'm not a betting person, but um, somebody I know who is has told me... One of your best friends, yeah. <laughs> I said, you better put some money on this because the first time ever these, these are changing now, the odds are changing and showing that there really is a change. And on the doorstep, I just heard yesterday, somebody said to me, you know, I've been a Tory voter all my life. This was a safe seat. This is now a marginal seat. That's a bit of a stretch. I mean, the Salvation Poll, um, if you click into it, you can see the methodology there. So it ignores people or, or who didn't express a preference at that time, hadn't made up their mind. At the time the poll was done, the Labour candidate hadn't been named. There was still an assumption there would be a Green candidate and a Brexit party candidate. And we're several weeks into the campaign. So I wouldn't wait too much on that poll at all as somebody who works with statistics and data. I'd also, even if I believed the poll, I wouldn't be complacent because a lot can change between no. now and then. Let, let, let's no. get on to that. I think complacency is the opposite of this. So when I talk about galvanised, this is about really working this. We have all of the East of Europe People's Vote and Cambridge Stays um, activists. East of are, England, sorry. The East of England. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, yeah, what okay. did I say? East of Europe, yeah. yeah well, yeah. East um, <laughs> Although we welcome people from we Central and Eastern Europe here, thank you. <laughs> we definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> but East of England, um, People's Vote and Cambridge Stays um, and other activists are joining us from this weekend onwards to work you know, with people, find out what they're thinking, talk with them about tactical voting, talk about why this seat is one of the top target seats in the country for the Liberal Democrats this time. What number is it on the target list, if there is indeed a number? There isn't a number, we're in the top 40. Top 40, God takes me back. Right, okay, sorry. Cultural <laughs> reference for younger people there, look it up. Um, that's interesting, because to make this a two-horse race yeah. would be an achievement, because yeah. it's been a one-horse race. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, the sitting MP has actually increased her majority, and uh, she had numbers of people voting for her over recent polls. Okay. Now, you talk about people's vote, etc. We've had some fantastic activity in and around Ely, in, and I, because this is an Ely podcast, okay? But um, if you, I don't know if you got yourself got along to the Ely for Europe rally, just um, on, I'm not going to say where we are, but not far from where we are, uh, um, a few weeks back. Fantastic. It was a fantastic I, event. I was there, yeah. and it both brought tears yeah. of those who, of the Europeans who stood up there, have been living in our communities, working with us, you know, who are facing the most horrific situations in terms of uncertainty and identity yeah. that they've never, ever felt in their lives before. So tears on that, tears also of Remainer Now, who are saying how they've changed, you know, what they felt about voting for leave, and mainly because of their, you know, what they've seen as the evidence since then, but also very personal stories about access to HIV medicines that, that they now know would be difficult to um, have access to. 
And Fantastic turnout. It was an amazing turnout. Amazing turnout. I mean, I'm not as committed to the cause as, as many of the people there, but I've, you could not fail to be impressed by the turnout and the breadth of um, views. And cross-party. Yeah, yeah cross-party. Cross yeah, I mean, a, a local Labour activist said to me with a kind of wink uh, at the end, he said that Tory peer was probably the best speaker, and that was not what either of us were expecting that no. morning, but he spoke very passionately on, on a personal level. Also, Ely Cathedral and the Business Tory peer group, did mention that he had just cut up his membership card from the yeah, yeah, he, he did, he did. But uh, I just want to say, I think it's know, a Europhile, absolute Europhile. Yeah, as are many people in the Tory party, I have to say that. Otherwise, yes. I get emails. No, okay, yeah. uh, Ely Cathedral Business Group also ran a climate change forum at the cathedral a few weeks ago. Again, really good turnout, and I was just so proud to see just how many talented people we have locally, really, really engaged. Toppings ran an event with Brett Anderson of Suede a few weeks later. I'm a man of a certain age, so I was there. And um, actually, there was more diversity in the audience. Oh, okay, there was yeah, a broader range. Yeah. Now, just as every disability is not visible, yeah. a lack of diversity isn't always visible. Yeah. Right? So, diversity is not just about gender, mm -hmm. it's not just about sexuality. Okay, it's not just about inequality of incomes, it's about a whole range of things. It might be a level of educational attainment, it might be whether you work with your hands or not. What uh, many of the people I live and work amongst weren't there at Ely for Europe, they weren't there at the Cathedral Business Group event. Um, and they look at me and think, why do you do that? So how do we broaden the range of people who take an active interest in politics? I think the values you've articulated today I challenge many people not to share them. They might come to a different yeah, conclusion about how you act. Yeah. So how do you how do you make a wider range of people? And I think you've just you? put your you know finger on it because it's about community. So I think, and I, and I've seen it happen now through the work that we're doing with the local councillors, you know, as councillors, together working with parish councils, you know, the neighbourhood plan concept where you work together to look at the kind of future for the place you live, this place-making, brings everybody together. And it really deals with difficult issues in terms of access to um, medical services, school services. How do you keep the high street to be thriving? And that's the life and soul of you know, some of the places that we have. And what I find there is it's, it's people from all walks of life who are living within that community that then start to realise so if we want to do this, we need to look at business rates on the high street. If we want to do this, we need to make sure that we are looking at the planning applications that are coming through. If we want to do this, we need to make sure that we've got the right councillors who are active and representing us. Perhaps I could be one. If not, perhaps we could come to the meetings. And it's building it out that way. And then the national representatives who are MPs engaging with those not on a non you know on a non-partisan basis really it's about representing what people need in order to do that place making and climate change is another one of those rallying areas um, our parish council has just declared a climate emergency because the school youth eco council went to them they were eight to ten year olds first time ever they went to a parish council meeting and asked the adults and parents there to say what were they going to do and that galvanised the parents yeah. in a parish council to think about what can we do. And then they looked at other councils and said, what are you doing? This is the way, I think, where people are looking at placemaking, you know, what we do with our lives, and how do we answer the questions that our kids are coming to, say, we can do something together locally. And that is really key. 
isn't it? It's those practical measures, because um, sometimes I get a bit irritated when I hear politicians shout different targets at each other for a year that's quite far away, regardless of which one that you're arguing over. It really is what you're going to do locally. And for you, it's about empowering local decision-making to bring about real improvements to exactly. tackle climate change, but improve people's lives and equality of opportunity at the same time. That'd be a great point to finish on, but it isn't. <laughs> OK, um, so <laughs> first hundred days of a Lib Dem government. Let's say there's a Lib Dem surge, right, which earlier in the year some people thought might happen. So let's say that happens, right? What does the first hundred days of a Lib Dem government look like? First hundred days of a Lib Dem government would um, immediately ensure that we have the kind of support for the actions we've just been talking about climate change. Yep. So we would immediately ensure that we're working with a climate assembly, which enables all types of people from all walks of life to be engaged with what needs to happen. Is that like a citizens' change. assembly, yeah. like people yeah. like Extinction Rebellion talk yeah. about? Okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We would declare a climate emergency. Um, and we would make sure that we have and reinstate the biggest investment in um, the Green Investment Bank once again. To make sure that we're actually making sure that we are leaders, world leaders in technology around the green economy. Secondly, we would ensure that the unfair systems around universal credit and the disability allowances and social mobility will be reviewed and reversed. So we will really make sure that the payments would happen within the first five days, not within five weeks of the credit system. That would be immediate. We would also look at proportional representation and make sure that, you know, the reason you asked why people are a bit, um, you know, Disengaged. Disengaged mm -hmm. is because their votes in the end don't count with the first-past-the-post system. So we would make sure this time that proportional representation does have a chance. And of course, what would we do? We would stop Brexit if we were a majority government. We'll come on to the B word later, but I'm going to I'm going to start with PR. Um, we're not going to have some sort of AV fudge this time, are you? We're going to have a real commitment to a form of PR now. Would you have citizens' assembly around electoral reform, or would you have actual proposals that you would implement? Um, that's an interesting suggestion, and I don't know the, the details of what we're doing. We are committed to it, and I think what we would have to do is make sure that we are we've got cross-party, you know, discussion on this to make sure mm. that it's it's workable. You know, because it went straight out to a vote last time, and that didn't work. So we can't fall, you know, into the same... No, I mean, I'm someone position. who's broadly for PR, but I voted against AV, because in all the discussion I'd ever heard about PR from when I was at school onwards, no-one had ever really spoken to me about yeah, AV. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I think we need to really look at how it can work. We need to look at other examples of it, you mm. know. It's, it's the same thing with the referendum. There were many examples around the world about how you do a referendum, and we should look and get evidence and then make sure that we've got the right way to do it. Yeah, I think the lesson of the, the referendum time might be uh, citizens' assemblies before the referendum. And it strikes me electoral reform would be one of those. Yeah. Uh, in an earlier podcast in this series, you know, we get on to PR. And I, I talk about local level, because mm -hmm. at the local level, I'm not hearing any discussion. But it's at the local level, particularly if you look at the results in these camps, actually, PR would make much more sense. And you'd end up with a council that's much more representative of that breadth of opinion. You know, we haven't had a Labour council here since the early 2000s. But there's a small core of people who still vote Labour. Mm -hmm. Their voices aren't heard. Mm -hmm. There's a core of people who might vote Green mm -hmm. if they felt there might be more impact. Well, if we look vote, at the yeah. Euro elections, so yeah. there was a Green MEP elected. There was. Yeah, there and, was. and that's because, you know... That's because some people probably felt for the first time 
that a green vote might be their way of not endorsing the party they normally yeah. endorse, but they didn't want to go to one of their bitter rivals. Yeah. There are some people who felt that way. Yeah, many others felt the Lib Dems as well too got in. <laughs> but no, I do think you're, I think you're right. I think we really need to look at this because what's fascinating is now the number of sixth formers that have written to me and are now saying, can we just see what a campaign looks like? I'm studying politics at A-level. I would like to study it at university. And it's gone from being politics as that kind of, oh, you take that subject perhaps because you're not taking another subject, to being having, I think, some of the most inspiring teachers, it seems, are out there. And these sixth formers are so engaged and they're fascinated. So we're going from a generation perhaps of more politically disengaged to the new generation who are so engaged. Therefore, that's where the sit-in assembly would allow us to enable the youth to come in and look at what kind of system they would like to see as well. Okay, let's get ultra-local. Your first 100 days as an MP. Yes. Now, what does that look like, and would it be different if your party was in government or in opposition? Well, I think you're right in saying get ultra-local, because what I would like to do on, you know, is immediately open up to a series of surgeries around the constituency to make sure that we know what the priorities are that I would be taking to Parliament. So absolutely um, local on that one. And then I think it's going to be about... So in my professional life, I work with and alongside governments and policymakers, bringing local people's voice to the table. So what I would be looking at is finding out which are the most important committees, select committees, pieces of policy where we can get the things that people from South East Cams need happening that I know where they are being discussed. And that would very much be around the whole issue of providing greater powers to local authorities and holding them to greater account to enable the development and growth that's happening around South East Cams to be fair, to be future-proofed in terms of climate change and to be completely affordable for the people that are, that are living here. Fantastic. Okay, um, NHS. What's your vision for the NHS? It's a very personal one. Okay. Um, so, as I said, my father was a GP, a mother and nurse, so yep. you know, I've always felt that I've been very close to the NHS. But two years ago, my husband was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia and was given two weeks to live. He went into Adam Brooks and... Um, the chemotherapy that he went through saved his life, but leukemia um, destroys your immune system. So it means that everything from free, you know, being having your the area where you're living on your bed being free from germs, to the kind of chemotherapy and um, you know the, the level of qualifications and research into cancer and oncologies is important. So what it meant was that it was from the cleaners at the hospital to the nursing staff to the world-class oncologists that saved his life. And I counted 13 nationalities in that ward that kept him alive. And they were most amazing people. So the NHS is made up of a really highly qualified, diverse group of professionals who are working in the most abominable um, circumstances, 
because they've been starved of the funds that they need. But there's also a workforce issue. Um, so in terms of the NHS, we would immediately provide you know, the funding that's needed. But it's not just about the funding, it's the workforce. Part of my professional life is to mediate big groups, conflicts around policy. And this year I mediated um, a conference for the NHS which brought in over 450 human resource directors. Their workforce plan recognised the nursing staffing crisis that we're facing and said the only way to deal with it is to have 5,000 nurses per year for five years that are recruited from outside the UK while we train and provide incentives for everybody within the UK to become nurses as well. And we would restore the, the nurse maintenance grant, the bursary. Great, because that's the missing bit for me. The bursary. We would provide the bursary. Yeah. We would reinstate the bursary for nursing. But we need to fill the gap now yeah, because it is crippling issue. the... Um, the service. But we're not writing off our own population saying they can't be involved in nursing and the NHS. They you, already you want are both. involved of and we have to have all the training, the lifelong training and conversion and the nurse bursaries and I now know what is needed for that workforce to be effective. But we have to accept that we need to bring in, we are made up of a diverse population within the NHS and we need to bring more in and value them. Fantastic. Um, thanks for sharing that personal story Pippa. Um, You've probably got a personal aspect on this one as well. I mean, how should the NHS link with social care? No, very much. So one of the things that um, is in our manifesto that's come through is, you know, it's the parity between physical and mental health care. We're so many of us, of our young children, um, teenagers, are facing mental health issues, you know, with depression and anxiety. And the access, rapid access, to somebody within the health system as a referral from the GP is critical. And that needs to be a joined-up system. And it's not at the moment, and it's cash-strapped. And some of these could be resolved so easily with some talking therapy, with access to people, with enabling them to link then to the social care situation and the education system. That's what's really, really needed. And to be able to do that is, one, it's the funding and it's the training, but it's also the setup that recognises that this is an integrated, joined-up system caring for our vulnerable people. That's great. Um, I was at a presentation yesterday by Royal London. Other insurers are available. Um, but the spokesperson there, she said, that, and this is just a fact, it's, it's not an opinion here, um, on a life insurance application in the UK right now, Apart from height and weight, because everyone has a height and a weight, the most disclosed condition now is some form of mental health issue. And there was an audible gasp in the room. Obviously, that's a massive umbrella heading, you know. Um, but it, it, again, it's not a fringe issue. It affects us all. It affects us all. And what, what has hit me most, as a councillor, I've dealt with many, many cases now in my constituency with um, local people. And I think that the worst thing is, it's again about this equal access. What is happening is the NHS knows what to do. It has some amazing people out there on the telephone even, you know, you can have access to, but they are just oversubscribed because of this pandemic that we're having. Yeah. And what then happens with parents and carers who are desperate when you find that your child is even considering self-harm or worse is to find somebody immediately. And what's happening is 
only those with money are now able to get the access and reassurance and support for their children because the waiting list for young people to get access to mental health support is six months or more. So one of the things you know that I'm, I'm very, very keen on that, that is in our manifesto is that for a child under 18 years, you would have access within a week to um, immediate assessment to enable you and your family and carers to work out what happens next. Okay, I'm going to break the fourth wall. And in the interest of balance, I'm asking all of you the same broad question. So I'm actually working from a list, okay? You've actually already answered my next question in a number of different ways, which is how would you address inequality? So I will just ask the question, though, um, in a different way. You mentioned social mobility earlier. That phrase has come up for discussion recently. Do you believe in social mobility? I think it comes back to equal access to opportunity yeah. for all, you know, and the Sutton report, uh, you know, is brilliant on social mobility, if you're looking at it as a social mobility issue. And what it talks about is the fact that, you know, we need to be providing early education and mainstream education for all within communities closest to where people live, and that that education is part of the community and lifelong learning is available. You know, it's, it's enabling everybody to have an early start, um, you know, and providing support for that early start in life as well. Um, so I don't know if it's social mobility, it's just really enabling everyone to know what the opportunities are out there and providing them with an equal footing. And education is a key piece to that, but also is access to um, some of the benefits and that's where we absolutely need a review to the universal credit and to the disability um, benefits that are, that are rolling out at the moment. And we also, affordable housing comes to this. We talk about it being affordable to live in. It's not just about the cost of the house. Where is that house? Where is it in relation to the school? Is there access? Is the school oversubscribed or can you get access to the school? Is there access to medical services? How far is it from your job? So if you're commuting, how are you taking care of your kids you know, before and after school? These are things that determine people's opportunities later on in life. That's great. Fuel poverty is another. So the Fuel Poverty um, Initiative was just launched by Cambridgeshire Charities. 33,000 homes across Cambridgeshire face fuel poverty this winter. That means people are choosing between heating or food or school supplies or clothing in one of the wealthiest you know, regions, and that's terrible. So they also said that they've just um, released research on the impact of cold homes on children. And it's not just about being warm and having a comfortable home, it's having a direct link to mental health, depression and anxiety, attainment in schools, um, and health, their physical health. So this is another area around fuel poverty that is something we would address immediately by insulating all homes and making sure through clean green energy that is free for these people. You know, these homes, we, we just have to... I was just talking with the housing people, actually, at my Climate Change Committee on Monday. In our council and social housing, we need to identify with these charities who say they know who they are, work together, identify these homes, have people who are respected and trusted that can come into the homes. People don't like being disturbed. Elderly don't like being disturbed. 
but how do we make sure their house is warm over, over winter? Okay. But, uh, thus far, I've asked some very broad questions. I hope I've earned the right for a narrow question now. Should the utilities be returned to public ownership? There are so many other issues that need to be dealt with. You know, I think there's a real case, for example, in terms of water especially. So in this region, we are facing real problems in terms of water scarcity. And people think the water comes from the tap. And the water companies, do you know what I found out as a, on the planning committee? Go on. The water companies are obliged, as consultees in a planning application, to say they can provide water, whether they can or not. So it's absolutely true. Okay. Yeah, absolutely true. So the Environment Agency has had its reports not exactly suppressed, but they've not been able to be easily accessible and public, which is looking at we've gone through an environmental drought and we're probably now going to, if we get another dry winter, go into what we would call drought. We need to look at where the supply of water is coming in, how we manage consumption, and who's paying for that. So I've worked in countries where water by law, is a right. Water, by law, is a subject of law. You know, so it's actually got environment, it's actually got legal rights as well. In that case, I think we could look at something like water. Yeah. But as I say, I just think we need to get on with some of the bigger stuff rather than, you know, trying to fix very, very, these complex systems around the utilities. On the broadband, one of the issues I have with a proposal to, to nationalise broadband is... We are looking at divesting investment from fossil fuels. And the areas, and I've looked into this for my own company and also for councils who've got pensions, if we want to divest away from fossil fuels, we can then look at services. And some of those services, you know, are some of the fast-growing service through competition. And so I think we need to look really carefully at the broadband issue. Whereas actually, I know that when I've gone to ethical investment, some of that is actually into, you know, broadband companies. And through companies, you know, through competition, that can become a better service. But we need to make sure that I think something like that can work through investment in a competitive market as long as state intervenes to make sure that it gets out to everybody. That the market functions properly. Exactly. Okay, so well, it won't so market, we just have to make sure yeah, that we, we deal okay. with market now. So you're not failure. opposed in principle to public ownership of utilities, however you're not just, ideologically committed to public ownership. It's just not yeah. a priority right now, I don't think. Okay. No. Final question. Now, I mentioned Ely for Europe earlier, so the South Camps for Europe. There are other groups whose thrust is Europe. That's not mine, but I'm going to ask a question about the E word and the B word. Okay, so I want to cast your mind forward to when our relationship with Europe has been resolved. The whole referendum era, or epoch, or geological era, it seems to have gone on forever, it's highlighted some real divisions mm. in our lands. Yeah, how can we act to heal those divisions within our own communities? And can I just ask when you think it will be resolved? No. <laughs> Because <laughs> Sorry, if we right. keep going with it, it's never going to be resolved. It's going to take years and years. But, well, well, like you, you know, like you, yeah. I, I believe in people, and I believe the yeah. best in all people. Yeah. I try not to demonise people who think differently from me. I'm not demonising. No. I'm talking about. So them. I tend to think 
that in the end there will be a reckoning of some sort. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm hoping for is a bit of uh, a bit of healing afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I don't have is the solution. Otherwise, I'd be wearing the rosette and you'd yeah. be interviewing me. So, so yeah, what, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, and I have to come back to it. So it's, it's about community again. So, it, you know, people say that some of the reason perhaps there was a protest vote, this was about left-behind places. I come from a left-behind place. I know what that does. Mm. And... You know, in Yorkshire and the place where I came from, it's more leave than remain. We have lots of conversations about this. Once again, it's going back to community and building and placemaking. And that's where the divisions, you know, I think in the end will be healed. Um, and it's enabling, once again, empowering people locally to make their place what they want it to be. I have to say that to enable that to happen, we need to have, you know, resources and economy that deals with all the things we've talked about today. So the Institute of Fiscal Studies has agreed that there could be up to 80 billion that we could spend on public services, on dealing with the issues that local communities want to deal with, if we weren't, you know, continuing with Brexit. And it's what we call the Remain bonus. And having talked, you know, passionately and, and with real when I say personal commitment to the issues we've talked about today, I find it very hard to think that we wouldn't just be getting on and enabling communities to do what they need to do, giving them access to the public services that they need. And to do that, you know, we need that remain bonus. We've said it's 50 billion. The Institute for Physical Studies says it's 80 billion that can be ploughed back in to make our public services functioning. And I do think we need to look at taxes for everybody, you know, to make sure that we can actually support the systems that people need and the services that people need. But, but once again, it's, it's about having the conversations. It's about getting back and being able to, at Christmas, be able to have a, you know, Christmas lunch or dinner together again where, where we, you know, where we can talk with our family even though we've got differences. And that's really important. Lest we forget, we're here in an area that was pretty much in line with the national vote, wasn't it? It's pretty much just a slight leave majority. Yeah. And that slight leave means that every family probably has some division. Trust me, I've had uh, people see me professionally. I've had husband and wife rowing over Brexit in front of me when I'm just trying to get on with the business of helping their business. It's, 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 <laughs> well, it does affect every, it affects businesses, livelihoods, jobs, relationships. So it really is about... I think what will bring us together in the end is focusing on placemaking within our communities and giving and empowering communities, you know, to build it together. Pippa, that's a great note to end on. Thanks very much for your time. I wish you and in the interest of balance, all the, under, all the other candidates, well, don't make me laugh, on December the 12th, 2019. We've been Ely saying something. If you're Ely saying something, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. So that was Pippa Halings of the Lib Dems. Election coming up on December the 12th, November 19, in case you didn't get that. What we did here was her real belief in community and equality of access to opportunity. Yeah, she believes in internationalism and there's a clear passion for the environment. But I was pleased to hear actual real practical solutions about things like housing, planning and education to make it real. In the interest of balance, all candidates have been asked to take part. And if you've got a view and you're Ely saying something, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.